This is episode five of Awaken with Dr. John McGrail. Here's what's coming up. Everything that exists is made of the same stuff. So we are part and parcel to the very fabric of the universe itself. We are quantum beings, energetic beings. Living essentially is nothing more than an exchange of energy between us and the universe. That exchange of energy that we call basic living creates an energy called thought. And thoughts have been scientifically proven to be energy and they have an effect on our environment. Welcome back to another episode of Awaken by Ascend. I'm Brian Henry, the founder of Ascend and your host. On Awaken, it's our mission to propel humanity in the direction of universal growth. We do this by having on special guests to the show who will share with you their experiences and wisdom to help you attain a greater state of health, live on a higher plane of consciousness, and manifest abundance in your life. In the 18th century, we started to look more and more to science to provide us with answers. And so many answers we found. Scientific methods has allowed us to make so many discoveries that we have found a great amount of benefit in and have made great growth and progress as a result of. But what happened was that we began to adopt a see-it-to-believe-it mindset. Collectively, we only started to form our belief systems around ideas if they were based upon scientific evidence. And people started to let go of belief systems, spiritual belief systems, because they were not rooted in science. Well, our guest today, Dr. John McGrell, saw a connection between some older ways of thinking and a sense of well-being and good health. Today, there is emerging scientific evidence in fields like quantum physics that is beginning to redirect us back to some ancient and spiritual ways of looking at the world. And using this understanding of ourselves and how our universe works, John McGrail has created a process called synthesis that he's been using to effectively help people overcome issues, find a sense of peace in their life, and create a life that they both enjoy and love. Synthesis also uses techniques within the field of hypnotherapy, which is a topic that I've recently found out has a lot of misconception painted around, and it too is based upon scientific evidence. In this episode, me and Dr. John explore some very interesting scientific literature, topics that forming an understanding around will help you transform your life. I hope you enjoy the episode. Dr. John McGrill is a renowned clinical hypnotherapist, self-improvement expert, and a spiritual teacher. He works with clients of all walks of life to overcome a wide array of issues with his process that he calls synthesis. Synthesis is an approach that integrates scientific and spiritual concepts and has successfully helped many people beat challenges such as chronic stress, depression, and obesity to then create a fulfilling life for themselves. Dr. John's work includes his book, The Synthesis Effect, and is built upon his number one rule. Life is supposed to be fun, and it is a great rule indeed. Hello, Dr. John. Thank you for joining us on Awaken here. We do appreciate your time. Hi, Brian. So nice to be with you. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. So, so before we get started here and dive into your teachings, is there, uh, is there any gaps that you'd like to fill in my introduction there? No, I think that's pretty good. I have a private clinical practice here in L.A., and through the miracle of technology, just like you and I can speak across great distances, I, I'm able to work with clients literally around the world with remote sessions. So it's a, it's a great, it's a great system, and it works really well. Uh, but that was a great intro. Thank you. You're welcome. So 
I know that you believe that a lot of the, the issues that, that we face, uh, both collectively and individually, can trace back to the root of what, uh, what some people refer to as our disconnection to the old ways and what you refer to as the great separation. Do you mind just diving a little bit into that for us? No, not at all. Um, you know, around five or six hundred years ago, there was the, what's known as the, the Great Enlightenment, where uh, science and religion were finally pulled apart, because up until those days, this is the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, up until those days, the church pretty much controlled every facet of life, including science. Everything was, was, uh, was the work of God, period. And then, you know, Copernicus started it, not to get too detailed, but he said, you know, let's take another look at things. Maybe the Earth isn't the center of the universe. Maybe there's some other answers. And that began the, the initial surge of what we call modern Western science. I'll believe it when I see it. They began to prove things like the Earth isn't the center of the universe. And in the Great Enlightenment, what happened was science was separated from religion, which had to be done. Scientists wanted to know the real facts and the real causes behind things. But unfortunately, what they forgot when they developed this science and modern Western science and philosophy was that religion and spirit are very different things. And they sort of left spirituality on the on the uh, the pile with religion. And so over the course of the last five or six hundred years, we've become more and more and more imbalanced because we've forgotten our spiritual roots. Mm -hmm. And when anything is out of balance, it doesn't work very well. We are so mired in materialism and the world of the physical, and we've forgotten our spiritual nature. And that's why so many people are walking around chronically stressed, anxious, um, addictions, obese, crime, you name it. It's all uh, due to what happened so long ago. It's just gotten to the place where now people are really wigged out all the time. Mm -hmm. So with the old ways now, what uh, what did life look like back then? How did it differ the, uh, from, from the kind of lives we're living now? Well, in the old ways, you have to look to the tribal communities, the indigenous peoples of the world. And of course, here in, in North America, we have the Native Americans. And they lived a very different lifestyle. First of all, they had to live in community in order to survive. They could not live isolated like we are now. And so it was all about community. Kids in those days, first and foremost, were taught that they are spiritual beings and that it is important to live in balance with themselves, with others, with the universe and the earth. Everything was imbued with spirit, which they've now scientifically proven, by the way. But if you were a kid in a tribal nation, you'd be raised to take best advantage of your talents. For instance, say you were a great fisherman. You would be raised to be a fisherman. So you got to do what you like to do and what you were good at, but you did it for the good of the tribe. And so it was a win-win situation. And every member of the tribe had a role that utilized their greatest talents, but also contributed to the well-being of the whole. And that's not how we live anymore. Now it's all about be number one, beat everybody. And we live in isolation which has been scientifically proven to be the, the single greatest cause of, of stress and depression, isolation. So they were about community and, and nurturing one another and living in balance, and we are living exactly in the opposite way. We are destroying the earth, we're destroying the climate, um, we live in isolation, and we are a mess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so coming back to the, the old ways and why we were even talking about in the first place is uh, we both know that 
some of these some of the issues that that we face today weren't weren't anything that that people back then when when that sense of community was present um was were facing right and and i guess what you're saying here is you you're seeing the connection between between the two the the way that that people went about living their lives and that that sense of connection that they they had with with each other and and with with nature and some of the some of the uh, issues that that we're facing these days correct Oh, absolutely. If you do any research, and I've never done an official study on this, but but a casual study, and if you look at some of the diseases and the illnesses that we uh, are facing today, like uh, Crohn's disease and lupus and ulcerative colitis and IBS and all these weird sort of illnesses that don't respond well to Western medicine, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and you know it, a, a bipolar and on and on it goes. If you look at the, the the indigenous cultures of the world, there's no evidence that they suffered from any of these illnesses or maladies until they were exposed to Western thinking and started mm-hmm. living the, the way we do. And then they they're it's rampant. So, yeah, they had a lot less stress and they lived a lot more naturally. And, you know, I'm not saying that we should all go back and live into in the woods, but I can tell you this, that. When we recreate that balance, and that's a large part of my work, when an individual does the work and recreates that balance between the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual part of them, suddenly life starts to work really, really well. A lot of these illnesses go away almost overnight. It's unbelievable how quickly it can happen. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it reminds me of a, uh, a study that I looked into not too long ago, and um what they shown was there was uh, I forget where it was about in the world, but there there was a community that that kind of like we're describing here was a, a very tight knit community, and what they found was that other than that fact, the way that they lived their life, what we would consider the the, the health habits, um, there wasn't much difference between them and the 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 other cities in the world, and what they found was that community for some reason just had a lot better uh, sense of well-being and they were a lot healthier than everyone else in the world and over time what they what they found was as that sense of community slowly kind of faded away and as generations went by that that sense of community was lost it correlated the the health of the the people that were living in this community slowly declining and slowly kind of just leveling off with with the uh, the health of everyone else. So it definitely goes to show that uh, there's something there with with regards to health being very much associated or well being very uh, being very much associated with with a sense of community and being being connected to to one another. Well, yeah, we are a social species uh, by nature, and. When we lose that that sense of community, and it's very, very easy to do, particularly in this day and age, it does have a direct effect upon us. Um, the, the scientific studies around isolation and stress and depression are just, I mean, that's a perfect example right there. But there are dozens and dozens of them. You can go, you know, we have the library at our fingertips. Just go online. Mm-hmm. And you you can read about these studies. And then when that sense of community is reestablished, then people suddenly start getting healthy again and they start feeling it. We, we, we need to be appreciated. Um, that's the number one need for every human being on the planet is to feel validated and appreciated. And when you're in a community and contributing to it, that just comes with the territory. Awesome. Okay, so before we explore your, your process synthesis, I believe that there's, there's a foundation of understanding that, that 
wh- when you have you'll you'll be better equipped at at using the process and uh that understanding entails understanding the following statement we are quantum beings living in a quantum universe would you like to speak to that for us <laughs> well that's a pretty big topic but essentially um that refers to the science of quantum physics physics as most people know is the study of how the natural word world works the physical world that's why they call it physics and there's two branches of physics newtonian physics studies sort of the big picture the macro uh, and quantum physics studies the nature of matter and energy what makes up the universe and us and what they've discovered of course is that the universe and everything in it if you get small enough is made of the same stuff pure energy they've actually isolated what they believe is the smallest naturally occurring energetic particle. It's called the, the, um, the Higgs boson, which is not necessarily important. But what it means, if you boil it all down, is that we are nothing more than quantum energy. Everything that exists is made of the same stuff. So we are part and parcel to the very fabric of the universe itself. We are quantum beings, energetic beings. And quantum simply means energy levels. That's all that is. Uh, And when you start realizing that the whole universe is just an energetic exchange, for instance, a human being, we are a spirit. That's one form of uh, universal energy living in our physical body, which is another form of universal energy. And we're doing this process that we call life. Well, living essentially is nothing more than an exchange of energy between us and the universe. I'll give you some very basic examples. We take energy in, we breathe in air, we see, we smell, we touch, we taste, we eat food, we drink liquids. That's all different forms of energy coming into our our being. Energy goes out, we think, we move, we behave, we pee, we poop. Energy in, energy out, life, and it creates an energy. When energy is exchanged, it cannot be destroyed. That's a physical law. It has to go somewhere in the human being that exchange of energy that we call basic living creates an energy called thought. Mm-hmm. And thoughts have been scientifically proven to be energy, and they have an effect on our environment. They create feelings. Feelings are the re- reflections of emotions. And so you go through this loop, thoughts, feelings, emotions, thoughts, feelings, emotions, over and over and over again. And that creates the energy of belief. Mm-hmm. Beliefs are nothing more than thoughts that we've thought so many times, they become automatic And they become unquestioned. But once you believe something, it defines your perception of truth, perception being the operative word. And once you perceive something is true, that frames the energy of your reality. And so as quantum beings, the way we process energy creates our reality. And that's a real big thing for a lot of people to swallow because we like to think that life is happening to us, especially when things aren't going well. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Life is Mm -hmm. happening to me. The truth of the matter is, and again, the science is there now, is that we are creating that reality very often unconsciously, but creating it nonetheless. So that's what it means to be a quantum being. Yeah, I definitely think it's a it's a big realization, a big light bulb moment when when we start to look at the world in terms of energy and start to realize that that everything is energy. And I think the big one is uh, when you come to uh, when you come across the the evidence that that thought is energy too, and like you said, there's there's upcoming science that that's starting to show that thought is energy that can interact with with what we can uh, consider our, our material external world, right? And previously, no one really had that that uh, that idea that that 
something that's going on in our minds can can literally affect our outside world. So do you have any examples of of scientific literature that that points to or or supports that? Yeah, the best one I can I can offer the the audience is is a book by a uh, uh, a colleague and I'd like to say friend of mine Lynn McTaggart. The field. Uh, and, huh, excuse me. Is it the field? The field, but also the intention experiment. Okay. The intention experiment. Uh, the field is is a great discussion of of so what we're talking about uh, along the lines of quantum reality, and I I devoted a section of my book toward it as well to try to make it as simple and understandable as possible. But in the intention experiment, she outlines the scientific experiments that have been done that prove, prove scientifically, because we need to see proof in order to believe it, that our thoughts have a direct effect on our environment. So from experience as simple as focusing on two batches of, of bean seeds that were planted, one batch uh, the, the is, is, is um, inundated with thoughts of love and growth and thriving, and the other batch is, is inundated with thoughts of hatred and anger. And invariably, the batch that was thought of in terms of love and growth and are the are, thrive. They grow faster and more quickly. And there's just experiment after experiment after experiment that has have been done that that just shows how powerful thoughts are. Another great example is um, a Japanese scientist called Dr. Emoto who did the experiments with water crystals. And if you read his book, The True Nature of Water. And, and look at the evidence from his studies. It's unbelievable how powerful the energy of thought is in terms of how it affects the environment. It's just unbelievable. It's hard to fathom, but it's there. It's true. It's been proven. I want to thank you for those examples and resources, Dr. John. I will link to the uh, to those resources in the the show notes for the audience who wants to check it out. But again, I think it's it's like you're like you're saying the the believe it to to see it. Sorry, the see it to believe it mentality is is everywhere these days. And I think those the the fact that there's signs starting to to show some of these or support some of these ideas is huge. So just uh, to to summarize there, guys. Um, Thought, thought is energy. It holds a lot more power than, than we previously may have thought. And, um, and we'll soon start to see how we can, we can use that power and how, to, how we can manipulate our thoughts to, to bring about the, the result that we're looking for. I'm so glad you said that because a thought is energy, but it's only as powerful as we allow it to be. Nice. Okay, so another one of the uh, those areas that I feel like uh, is is going to allow us to better um, utilize the the synthesis process is the the differentiation between the the conscious and subconscious minds, which is something that you also dive into in in the book. So uh, the conscious mind, I think, is pretty well understood. It's the 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 part of the mind where where thought and intention occurs. But I don't think that that many people understand the the power that the the subconscious mind holds. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about um, what what goes on in the subconscious mind and how does it affect both our performance and well-being? Well, essentially, if you take the human mind, only about 10% of it is what we would call the conscious mind or the logical mind or the cognitive mind. And, of course, that's the part of the mind that we pay so much attention to because we use it to get through our day. It's what allows us to make decisions and to make choices. The subconscious, which is operating below the level of our awareness, is actually 90% of the human mind is actually subconscious. So it's much bigger. It's much more powerful. And 
it can process a lot more information a lot more quickly than the conscious mind. Now, that's both good and bad. The other thing that people don't understand about the subconscious mind is that it appears to operate very much like a computer. Now, it's not really the way it operates, but that's what it feels like, and it's a great metaphor. And like any computer, without a database, without programming, it can't do anything. Now, the programming for our subconscious begins right out of the gate, almost as soon as we're born, and most of it's finished by the time we're eight years old. By the time we are eight, we are pretty much programmed for the kinds of adults we're going to be. Our attitudes, our values, our beliefs, our personality, whether we're introverted or extroverted, all of those basic core uh, attributes are already in place by the age of eight, actually even younger than that. And that programming, if you will, is what uh, determines most of our behavior, how we respond to the world. It's automatic. For instance, if someone says, you know, you know, Brian, you're a bum. If someone said that to you, you would probably react instantly, not from a conscious perspective. Your subconscious mind would process process that and very likely you would feel that a very simple example. But the subconscious programming is really what's running most of the show, because if you think about 10 percent of the mind is logical and conscious. 90% of the mind is operating like this big computer that never gets past the age of three. It's running the show most of the time. And that's what hurts so much. If we have negative programs like, I don't believe I'm worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not this enough or I'm not that enough, which is what we learn. Then that is going to be the overriding response we have to the outside world. And while we might want something consciously, I want to have good relationships. I want to have a great job. I want to feel better about who I am. That's only 10%. So it's like a tug of war. You've got 10 guys pulling on one way on the rope and 90 guys, the part of the mind that says, no, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. You can't have that raise. Pulling the other way. Who wins? The subconscious wins almost all the time. That's why willpower is such a very weak force, comparatively speaking. The, the, our will has the ability to override our subconscious mind, but for how long? How long can 10 guys hold the rope against 90? That's why people make uh, New Year's resolutions. They keep them for a day or two or a week or a month, and then boom, you're right back to where you started because that tug of war is one that you cannot win. And so that's the essential, very basic operation of the mind, the subconscious computer, if you will, a lot of behavioralists would, would hate me saying that because that's not really how it works, but that's what it feels like. So it's the easiest way to understand it. And then the conscious cognitive mind that's sort of making decisions. Another metaphor that I really like because my clients understand it is, is take a modern jet airliner. You've got the two people in the front, the pilots, who can fly that plane really, really well. They're very well trained. They're very experienced, and they're really good at driving that airplane. There's also a computer on board called the autopilot that can fly the plane even better. In fact, the, the autopilot flies the plane a lot more than the pilots do. So let's say you take off and you're on your way from New York to Denver. And halfway, and you get up there and you fly the plane up to 35,000 feet. And then you say, you know what? I want a cup of coffee. I'm kind of tired because it's hard to fly those planes at altitude. I used to do that for a living. Mm -hmm. So you turn on the autopilot. You've programmed that autopilot to go to Denver. It will take you to Denver beautifully. In fact, probably even more smoothly than if you could fly by hand all the way. But then halfway to Denver, you say, you know what? I want to go to New York. So you turn off the autopilot, and now you're driving the plane to New York. Great. Everything's going well until you get tired, the pilot, the conscious mind. And you say, oh, I want another cup of coffee. So you turn on the autopilot. 
but it's programmed to go to Denver. So what happens? The plane goes right back to Denver. That's how the conscious and subconscious mind work for the most part. So willpower alone is very rarely enough when you want to make a big change or transition in your life because you're not liking the way things are going. And it's that interplay between the conscious and the subconscious that creates that. Okay, so I love that analogy. I think it does a great job of painting the picture um, between how both the conscious and subconscious mind works. The the I think the big takeaway points that, that I got from that there is that while the subconscious mind can be beneficial, because the, the way that, uh, that I'm considering it here is it allows you to, to accomplish certain things or allows for certain behaviors to be done without the need for, for um, that, that thought process that might take a lot more energy. Um, sometimes the subconscious mind is going to end up taking you in a direction that, that you don't want to go. How's that sound? Exactly. We get a lot of negative programs when we're kids. And, and, you know, it starts with well-meaning but usually misinformed parents. They start criticizing the child and on and on and on. And then it gets – as our world expands, we get, we get uh, exposed to more and more of it. And most of us in modern Western culture, because modern Western culture – you know, first of all, the other thing about the computer, the subconscious, is that all it knows is positives and negatives. Just like a, a, a mechanical computer – is all zeros and ones. That's all a computer does. The most powerful computers on the planet, zeros and ones, billions and billions of zeros and ones. But that's as far as it can count. The subconscious computer uses positives and negatives. And like a mechanical computer doesn't care if it gets a zero or a one, the subconscious computer doesn't care if it gets a positive or a negative. So when we are programmed as, at an early age with all these negatives, which is the, the way Western culture thinks about n- negatives, it's always gloom and doom and not enough and insufficient. I'm, and so if you're programmed that way, that's your default. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is if, is if when your conscious willpower gets tired, which it will, the subconscious programming takes over. And if it happens to be a negative program, you're right back in the goo. Now, we also have positive programs. Nobody's completely negative. But that's really the interplay. And it's hugely important because if you want to make a change in your life, and I know we're going to get to that. The only way to make it stick is to essentially reprogram that subconscious computer so it starts running the program you want it to rather than the one it was learned or that it was programmed or that it learned because these are all learned. Yeah, so it's huge. It's really, really important. And that's the bulk of what I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Ascenders, up until now, we've learned a few things here. We learned that uh, over time, we lost our connection with each other and, uh, and the natural world, and that's seemingly associated and correlated with, uh, with a decline in our, in our well-being. We've learned that, um, that we're quantum beings living in a quantum universe and that everything at its, at its, uh, at its deepest form is, is energy, including your thoughts, and life is nothing more than, than interactions between energy. And we just learned that uh, the subconscious mind contains patterns of of feelings, behaviors, and emotions that sometimes can can be beneficial to us, but can sometimes also take us in directions that that we don't necessarily want to go. So now that we've built this this sort of foundation of knowledge, how do we use it to bring about the the life that we we desire? How do do we go about it to, to find fulfillment? peace and abundance in our life. And I think that brings us to the, the synthesis effect. So Dr. John, what is the synthesis effect? Well, Brian, the, the synthesis effect 
is actually the end of the process. After you've used the synthesis process, the effect is learning to live your life virtually free of suffering. And I know people say, oh, that's not possible. Well, it is possible because a lot of our suffering is self-induced. We don't do it on purpose. But remember, we create our own reality through our energy exchanges. So the effect is learning to get rid of those limiting beliefs, those self-doubts, the lack of confidence or self-esteem, or actually what I like to say, rediscovering that in enormous self-esteem we're all born with. And learning to get your subconscious mind working in alignment with your conscious desires. If we're in pain because 10% of our mind wants something, but 90% of our mind is programmed the other way, that causes that pain. So we need to reprogram the computer, which is what the synthesis process does, so that the subconscious computer, the 90%, the powerful part of the mind, is working in alignment with what we want consciously. And then there's no more tug of war. Now we've got this incredibly powerful entity, our mind, working the way we want it to. And so instead of reacting negatively, which is what we're trained to do or programmed to do, we start responding positively to the same inputs, but we get much different results. Nice. So you uh, you present uh, a formula that I very much uh, like, and it, you call it the, the formula for change. So the yes. formula for change has a, a few different ingredients. They're desire, commitment, love, honor, and respect. And then you include as well the, uh, the catalyst of change, intention and expectation. So desire, commitment, love, I think those, those ingredients there will, will make sense to, to the vast majority. You have to know what you want. You have to commit to going out and getting it. And then you have to love yourself enough to, to want that end goal for yourself. But the area where I feel like a lot of people, uh, people lose sight of is the power that intention and expectation hold. And this will go back to why we spoke to the, the, the idea that we're all energy and we're, we're quantum beings interacting with a, a quantum world. Dr. John, how does intention and expectation work in our world? Okay, well, happy to, to, to explain that. But I think what we do need to just add is that desire, commitment, love, honor, and respect are also energies. And many, I can't tell you how many people over the years uh, call me and they say, I want to do such and such. I want to, I'll use some very, I want to lose weight or I want to quit smoking or I can't pass the bar exam. And then when I really talk to them a little bit, I find out that they're doing this because someone else wants them to do it. And so that never works. The desire has to be yours and it's got to be for you, not for someone else. And the commitment is something that a lot of people aren't used to either because the commitment is an attitude. It's an energy. It's an attitude. <clears throat> and it's I will do, excuse me, whatever it takes to make this happen. <clears throat> and a lot of people aren't willing to do what it takes. It is work. There's an effort involved. It's a process. There's no magic wand. I have one in my desk that I take out when someone goes in and they want the magic wand. I say, well, here's the magic wand, but it's not going to work. So commit to the process or not. And then love, honor, and respect. We're not very good at that because we're not taught to be very good at that. We're taught to be very hard on ourselves. So when we get those energies right, and that's usually where I start, intention <clears throat> is an amazing power, energy of power. Intention is the energy behind all creation. You can't build a building, you can't paint a painting, you can't write a book, you can't do anything until you intend it. Mm -hmm. 
So it's the motive energy behind all creation. But I like to take it a step further. I like to define intention as laser-sharp focused thought combined with action in order to produce a result. Thought and action combined. If you just think about what you want, which a lot of us spend a lot of time doing, but you don't do anything, it's very unlikely you're going to get your results. If you act without some focused thought behind it, you might stumble upon your results, but it could be a really long road to hoe. But when you bring those two energies together with laser-like focus, and the reason I use the metaphor of a laser is because what is a laser made of? It's light. Same thing that comes out of a light bulb, light. It's the same exact energy. But when you focus it enough, suddenly you have a laser, which can do so many more things than a light bulb can. Same thing with intention. The more laser-like your focus, the faster you get what you want because that's a very powerful energy. And the energy of expectation, again, in Western culture, we've sort of lost our ability or our knowledge of how powerful expectation is. And you mentioned it a few minutes ago, Brian. We've been taught to believe in or to see in order to believe. We have been taught through Western science and philosophy that if you can't prove it, if I can't see it, then I'm not going to believe it. And so because that's how we think, it makes it very difficult to manifest. If you talk to the native peoples of the world, the primitive peoples, the indigenous folks, they would tell you that they think exactly the opposite way. They believe, expect, in order to see. And what I tell all my clients, my workshop students, when I do TV shows or shows like this, the more you expect your results when you enter the process of creating change, the more powerfully you will create them. If you don't expect to get results, then don't expect to get results. In other words, in order to change, in order to synthesize your new life, you have to expect that it's going to happen or it won't. Mm -hmm. nice. So those are very powerful energies. Nice. And I think uh, going back to, to seeing to believe it, uh, examples will, will always be so powerful to, to support and, and convince people of, of the power of some of these, uh, some of these energies, intention, expectation. So could we, could we speak to a little bit about some of the, the evidence again in, in those um, laboratory settings of intention and expecting, expectation having a direct effect on, on the result? Yeah, there's a really famous experiment uh, I told you one about there have been many experiments with growing things and the experiments with water crystals and how they respond to different kinds of thoughts. But there's also a really great experiment where they took a, a machine called a random event generator. And essentially what this machine does is it spits out numbers. It can be an odd number or an even number. And there's no way to predict it. It's a random event generator. So it happens completely at random. And in this one experiment, they took two groups of people and they had them expect with all their might a certain number to come out, whether it was odd or even, I don't know. And what happened over time was there, there, was, a, there was a statistical um, uh, validity is that the people that learned how to do this actually changed the random event generator to start spitting out the numbers they wanted to at a higher frequency. It was just, un I mean, when you read this stuff, it blows your mind. You say, there's no way this can be true. But they repeat it over and over and over again. And so we know, using Western science, I'll believe it when I see it, because we're, we're seeing it, that believing to see actually is the way we manifest. Because believing that certain numbers were going to come out 
created the effect. It's really, it's, it's, it's mind blowing, but that is the nature of energy. <laughs> there you go, Asan. There's more evidence to support the idea that, that intention and expectation hold energy and hold power and can directly influence your, your, uh, your result more than we previously could have imagined. Okay, so I do want to go um, a little bit deeper into into your process and how we how do we implement some of these ideas into to our our lives. And um, one of the the areas that I definitely wanted to to talk to you a little bit more about because personally I don't have that deep of an understanding is the uh, the hypnotherapy. So that's something that I came across maybe just a few weeks before uh, looking into your work and. As I'm sure many people, uh, like many other people, there, I, I had no, no idea what hypnotherapy was all about. There's so much uh, misconceptions around hypnosis and hypnotherapy that um, I, I would, I would say that the the vast majority of people probably aren't convinced yet. So <laughs> why don't you, uh, why don't you clear up some of the misconceptions? Um, painted by the media, and tell us really what is hypnotherapy all about? Well, in essence, hypnotherapy is the use of a state of consciousness. So we have to take it back one step. Hypnosis is a state of mind. It's a state of consciousness. So the first misconception is that when you're in hypnosis, it's some otherworldly state of mind that that you that someone induces you into. The truth of the matter is every single human being on the planet who doesn't have brain damage, enters hypnosis several times every day. And I'll give you some examples of natural hypnosis. Anytime you watch a good movie or even a great TV show and you're sucked in by the movie and you're feeling, you're having an experience, you're feeling feelings, you're laughing, you're crying, you're scared, you're excited, whatever it is, you are actually in a state of hypnosis. You are responding to suggestions at a subconscious level. That's where all those feelings come from. They come from the subconscious. You don't say, oh, this guy just died. I think I'll cry. You start crying because your hero died. That comes from the subconscious computer, if you will. So hypnosis is a natural state of consciousness. You're always awake. You're always aware. When you daydream, you're, it's a form of hypnosis. When you read a good book and you can't put it down, what's going to happen to Harry Potter? You're in a state of hypnosis. And so it's simply a state of mind. But it's a very powerful state of mind because it allows us to connect directly to the subconscious, which, as we talked about a few minutes ago, is running the show most of the time. Most of what you're doing, any of us, in a given moment in time, is originating in our subconscious programming. Hypnosis allows us to communicate, if you will, with the subconscious mind directly without the part of our mind that would say no. For instance, again, using a movie, when you go to the movies and it's a crummy movie, you sit there and you say, oh, my God, this movie is terrible. How did they make this thing? Who gave them the money? Oh, well, what happens is your critical mind, that's part of your conscious mind, is still online. You're not in hypnosis. When you enter hypnosis, that part of your mind that says, no, 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 I can't, I won't, we, we will not, that part of your mind shuts down for a little while. And the subconscious mind comes online, takes over. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the subconscious mind is about three years old. That's as old as it ever gets. And so when it watches a good movie, it feels real. It can't tell the difference between reality and illusion. And that's all hypnosis does. When it's induced on purpose in a therapeutic setting, because you can induce it and do a stage show. 
You can have people quacking and flapping like ducks and doing all these zany things that people do in a stage show. It's simply a state of consciousness. What you do with it is is totally up to the, the purpose. Um, and the people in a stage show are up there because they want to be in the show. They want to do all that zany stuff or else they wouldn't go up. But in a therapeutic setting, we create that state of consciousness. We guide the client into hypnosis. And then we can have a conversation with that three-year-old subconscious mind and essentially say, look, you've got this pattern, this habit, this emotional feeling, this limiting belief, whatever it is, this lack of self-esteem, this fear or this phobia. It's like you learned two plus two is five, little kid. How's that feel? And, of course, the three-year-old subconscious says, well, it feels terrible, but that's my program. That's all I know. And what we do while we have that direct access is say, well, you know what? You got bad information. Erase that program. Try this instead. Try two plus two is four. Try you have the ability of being anything you want to be. You can. You are completely worthy of having whatever it is you want. You can get on that airplane and fly. Two plus two is four. What do you say? And the three-year-old says, okay, sure, whatever you say because it's three. It doesn't care. So that's what hypnotherapy is. It's using the state of consciousness we call hypnosis to – essentially reprogram our subconscious computer so it begins working and running programs that we want rather than the ones it learned. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's as, that's as simple as it gets. And it's a very, very powerful process because it's all natural. You're always awake. You're always aware. You're always in control of yourself. But it really has a profound effect. I, I like to call it a tool. It's a tool that helps us reprogram the computer to work the way we want it to. Mm -hmm. So is this a tool that someone can, can learn and use on their own? It is. Self-hypnosis, like I said, we, since we enter hypnosis every day anyway, self-hypnosis is learning how to induce that state of consciousness on purpose and on cue without someone guiding you there. It's usually learned more easily if you learn it first with someone that knows how to do it, like a hypnotherapist. Mm -hmm. But Part of my process, excuse me, with all my clients is to teach them self-hypnotic techniques so that once we're finished and they're feeling good, they don't have to depend on me forever. They've got the tools now. They know how to keep their mind tuned up and working the way they want it to. That doesn't mean they won't come in from time to time for a, for a you know, professional tune-up. But yeah, self-hypnosis is easily learned, usually through the guidance of a professional, but you could learn it from a book. If you wanted to and you were willing to practice enough, it's because it's a natural state of consciousness. You're already doing it. Okay, so I got two questions. The first okay. one is um, what sort of uh, obstacles, challenges, issues can can hypnotherapy um, address? And if someone came to you and so you say, you're saying here that the the best possible scenario is, is first having it done with a professional um, and then then going about learning how to do it from them, the, the uh, inducing self-hypnosis, uh, self that is. Um, mm -hmm. But what direction would you point someone in if they weren't willing to, to go seek the, uh, the guidance of a, um, of a professional? Well, again, not everybody would need that. But if you want to do it on your own, there are many, many good books on self-hypnosis. I, I actually, uh, as part of my synthesis process in The Synthesis Effect, teach people essentially how to do self-hypnosis. So if you don't want to you know, get trained by someone that can make it happen a lot more quickly and a lot more efficiently and you want to do it on your own, 
the literature is out there. It's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you can go to YouTube and, and learn self-hypnosis watching videos if you want to. But it is usually more effective if, if you have someone that's well-trained and experienced because there are blocks and obstacles. It's hard to be the, the hypnotist and the subject at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's, it's a skill. It takes a lot of practice for most people. For most people. Some people are naturals at it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, it's easy enough to find. that With the Internet, we have the world at our fingertips. And as far as your first question is concerned, um, I, general, I deal with the spectrum of human behavior. You name it. If it's not a, psych, a, um, a psychosis, I probably work with it from self-confidence and self-esteem to getting over unwanted or unhealthy habits or emotional patterns, limiting beliefs, uh, improving performance at, at school or at work or at play. I work, with, I work with actors and writers and musicians. I work with professional athletes from the only sport I don't think I've worked with is, is hockey. But I've got football players, baseball players, basketball players, uh, Olympic gymnasts, ice skaters, skiers, golfers. Uh, everything we do happens in the mind. The mm-hmm. mind processes everything. And all hypnosis and hypnotherapy are, uh, are um, it's a methodology for helping the mind work the way you want it to. So literally the spectrum of human behavior, um, and including some medical and psychological conditions, under appropriate referral from someone that's licensed, like a doctor or a psychiatrist, because I don't have a license, nor do I want one. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay. So, um, what I took from there is most of most of not all of these issues are, are rooted in in the mind and how we how we think, uh, both consciously and subconsciously. And yeah, just correct one thing. It's not most. It's all. All. Yeah. yeah. Okay, it's so then, online. so I guess we'll go as far as to say that that hypnotherapy is something that that everyone can can find benefit in. Theoretically, everyone. There are a few people. There's a very small percentage of the population that um, is unable or unwilling to allow themselves to enter that state of consciousness. It's a mm-hmm. very tiny uh, percentage of the population, but there are some people that just have such a huge fear of losing control which you never do, but that's what they're afraid of, that they won't allow themselves to go there. Um, so, but yeah, the vast majority of people do extremely well with hypnosis and hypnotherapy. It's a very powerful tool for an awful lot of conditions, uh, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Awesome. So I want to wrap up here with, uh, with probably, well, in my opinion, the, uh, the most important destination that, that synthesis has us come to, and that's what you call practical enlightenment. Would you like to speak to that? I, I would be delighted to. It, it sounds really, um, you know, sort of big and ethereal, but uh, when I was doing my research for my doctoral dissertation, uh, and, and I was working with clients, and that's how the whole synthesis process came about, I started thinking about the word enlightenment, and it started with a conversation I had with a client. In fact, I actually include that conversation in the book. And, you know, we were talking about what is enlightenment, you know, that you can, it's a huge concept. And you think about some of the, the, you know, incredibly special human beings that have graced our species, people like Muhammad and Jesus and the Buddha, um, and then a little bit lower down, like the Gandhis and the Mother Teresas of the world. We could call these people almost walking deities because they were so enlightened. And very few of us are ever going to be a Jesus or a Buddha or a Gandhi or a Mother Teresa. Let's face it. I mean, most of us are just 
trying to get by. We're regular old people. So we're not going to reach that state. But one thing, one definition that I really, really liked about enlightenment was from the Buddha and the Buddhist um, tradition. And the Buddha said, enlightenment is the end of suffering. So when you learn how to live without suffering, you become enlightened. And I thought, you know what, that's as simple as it gets. And the beautiful thing is, is that while very few of us are ever going to reach that state of grace where we could compare ourselves to some of these walking deities, any one of us, any single person on the planet, if they're willing to do the work, can learn to live virtually free of suffering. And that's what the synthesis process was designed to do. It was designed to help people balance their physical, emotional, and spiritual energies in such a way, get the mind working in such a way that they live virtually free of suffering. It's not perfect, Mm -hmm. but it's amazing how good it can get. And so since that's doable, it's practical, Mm -hmm. that's what I call practical enlightenment. Right, right. Nice. Live life virtually free of suffering. And it's absolutely doable. For sure. And just to come back to uh, to that belief that, that, like you said, many people would look at that and say, well, a life free of suffering. Well, no, that's that's not possible. Right. But that in itself is a belief. Right. That right, right. there is, is a belief. So how if if that's what you truly desired. Right. If I, I truly desire a life free of suffering. Well, if I'm telling myself the story, which uh, which a belief ultimately is, it's a story. Right. Yep. That that it's not possible and that can't be done. Then, well, of course, it'll never be achieved. But it was a, a big realization for me because I, I, I all the time I would speak to like, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I want to feel pretty good. I want I want to be at a sense of peace. But there was that side of me that that always wanted to to identify as a as a realist. And say, oh well, you know, there there's going to be some bumps and hiccups on the way, and of course there will be. But why not make that end goal free, a life free of suffering? And the first step in in moving towards that end goal is believing that that it's possible. Right. Absolutely. And that's the whole reason that I set my book up the way I did. Because I, like you, used to be a pragmatist. I was a realist. And let's look, this is reality, okay? And it was through my own process of getting through my own stuff that I learned how to do this and then went back to school to help others learn how to do it. Um, but yeah, it's only when you say, okay, I am willing to, to say that it's never going to be perfect, but let me see if I can learn to do this. And using this process... I've helped thousands of people now over the years, thousands, literally, learn to live their lives an awful lot better. And the more you practice, the better you get, like any skill, and the better you get, the less suffering there is. And it doesn't take an awful long time to suddenly realize that, hey, all that pain that I used to have, that I used to expect, it's not happening anymore. Does stuff still happen? Do I go sideways? Yes. I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years on myself. I still have moments where I suffer. But not too many. <laughs> nice. Okay, so Dr. John, I think we're running out of time here. Before we go here, I have to hear it one more time because it's such a great rule. What's your number one rule? The number one rule in the McGrail method is simple. Life is supposed to be fun. It is, and it can be, I promise you. There you go. 
Dr. John, I do want to thank you for your time. I love the uh, the process here that you've created, and I did enjoy reading the book. It's one of those books that I'm reading it, and throughout the whole book, I'm just there nodding my head, agreeing with almost every word that you uh, that you put on the paper. Um, so again, I did want to thank you for your time and for for bring light to to some of these topics that for sure just like many of your clients are going to help uh, many many people and um, I'm sure the the listeners appreciate it as well before you go here is there uh, is there anything else that you want to leave us off with and can you just uh, tell us where can we find more about your work if we uh, if we wanted to dive into it sure well thank you again Brian I really appreciate your generosity you're a terrific host and it's so nice to, to speak with someone that actually you know, read the book and took a look at it. Um, so that's number one. Number two, the, the, my final message is this to the, to the audience is that you may not think so, but I promise you, I absolutely guarantee and promise you that you have everything you need inside of you to create the life of your dreams. You do. Now, you're probably going to need a little assistance to bring it all out, but it's in there. I promise you. And as far as reaching me, um, I'm, if you Google Dr. John McGrail, I'll pop up. I've got a pretty good presence online now. But I, my websites are uh, drjohnmcgrail.com, which is more geared toward the synthesis process, and then hypnotherapy Los Angeles. That's all one big word, hypnotherapylosangeles.com is my hypnotherapy website, and there's tons of information on that. My phone number's on all my websites. If anybody wants to reach out and email me or call me, I promise you, if you do, if you have a question, first of all, um, I, I cheerfully do that at no cost, and there's never any obligation. But if you have a question, you want to learn more about it, give me a call, send me an email. I promise you'll get a personal response. Not my people. I will answer personally. Thanks so, so much, John. Well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Take care. Take care. What an enlightening conversation I just had with Dr. John. I think the, the scientific evidence that is coming to light, that is supporting some ancient and spiritual ways of looking at the world is going to be so huge for us in taking that next step in our evolution. Because as you can see, we are more than, than we may have previously thought. We are not machines. We are divine, spiritual, and energetic beings. And the deeper that we understand that idea, the more powerful and impactful we are going to become. So if you enjoyed the episode, please do let me know. You can shoot me an email at brian at togetherweascend.com. And if you'd like the show notes to the episode, you can find them at www.togetherweascend.com forward slash awaken5. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode and you took away some some eye-opening information um again this stuff really really excites me the, the, the where where science and spirituality meet i think there's there's so much power that can be derived from from understanding um that that again comes from from those two what previously used to be separate um lines of thinking um coming together and and providing evidence for for who we are and what we are. So thanks again for watching, guys. Take care until the next episode.